Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos, and we're picking up this evening with Hypothesis 29, and we are on page 248, about halfway down the page. And if you remember, we had switched to speaking about the furious kind of battle that the demons wage against those who are struggling in the spiritual life and to, to keep their, their minds and their hearts fixed upon God. And we had just finished uh, discussing those who are overcome uh, by the, the demons and that sort of hold them down as a tyrant. And yet, in some sense, give themselves over to uh, their ways and to such an extent that uh, they cease really to struggle any longer. And so become, he, the author says, spies against their compatriots that in the embrace of the barbarians world, if you will, or the tyrant's world, that uh, they uh, begin to act in such a way that is pleasing uh, to their conquerors, as it were, and in this sense become uh, spies of those who they originally struggled with, uh, not necessarily knowingly, but I think uh, in how they, they relate to them. And, um, and so it's sort of a curious image and uh, a little bit frightening too. Again, I think what the fathers so often show us is that there isn't a kind of neutral territory in the spiritual life, that we can't be passive in our response to God or his grace, but also we can't be passive in, in the face of the temptations that we experience or the struggle with the passions, that we will be drawn in one direction or another. Uh, Sue and Mark, do you already have a question or is? I do, you know, I was listening to that last week and my, my curiosity is how is, if you could elaborate and enlarge on, how is it that they become spies and, and what do they do? Uh, well, it was interesting how it's put in the paragraph before it. And so if you could just jump up the page uh, to the sentence that begins those, those about whom we are speaking are not led by force without wishing it, but actually give tribute to fulfill the will of him who deceived them. Hence, when they accomplish the evil deed they aim at, they display no repentance and continence and take no precaution against falling into the same fault. And so you can get to a point where you are not being sort of compelled any longer and you cease to repent or offer any kind of resistance and uh and so kind of pay a tribute if you will i thought was interesting to fulfill the will of one's new uh leader this tyrant who's who's taken hold of one's life and uh and so cease to become strugglers and in doing so, become part of the, the world, the culture, the life uh, that the tyrant is seeking to, to foster. And so in this way, I think contributes uh, to that which is hostile to the life of virtue. And there is this kind of, uh, again, connectedness that we have with each other. We don't live in isolation. 
and what we do and how we act is going to affect those around us. There's a kind of radical solidarity. And so, you know, the, the virtuous one within the church will help lift up the, the church as a whole. And uh, this is true within families as well. And yet uh, when uh, one of the members of the church falls, I think the whole uh, church experiences that too and laments it and uh and so again we aren't pass we don't experience that passively and I, I think when we give ourselves and begin to give ourselves over to it freely as discussed here is when one becomes a, a spy as it were that if we're giving ourselves over uh if we're not being dragged into it uh, or tempted into it but giving ourselves over to it freely that we become part of that force, if you will, that is seeking the ruin of souls or seeking to the influence of souls. So again, we, we get to that point where we're not passive participants. And if we participate in sin uh, and there is this lack of repentance, then we become part of the overall uh, struggle that is against that which is good and true and beautiful. And so it, so often the fathers call us to this kind of vigilance in life, you know, not, not simply for ourselves, uh, but uh, for all, that our, our actions, our words, our deeds can have a direct effect upon others. Okay, thank you for that. So, and maybe by looking at the opposite, which is what he does in this next paragraph, can help us flesh it out even a little bit more. By contrast, however, not all who are distressed on account of the captivity into which they have fallen remain satisfied by the morals of the barbarians and their iniquitous behavior. They hasten to escape from them, waiting for an opportunity to be rescued and to return to their comrades and to acquire their former freedom. They pray for their compatriots to come to their aid as allies. As soon as they are rescued from the adversaries, they at once become their opponents. They fight with their compatriots and together with them, they crush the enemy. All those then who wish to be freed from the bitter slavery of the enemy ought to resist his wishes and undertake open warfare against him after they have uttered to him with all their hearts the words of the children, be assured, O devil, that we will no longer hear thy voice, nor will we serve thy pleasures. And so an open warfare, an active warfare, where we clearly and vocally you know, denounce the evil one, and the, the path that he draws us upon. We engage battle, again, not in isolation, but with our compatriots, with the church as a whole, but even beyond that, with all the angels and saints. There's a story a little bit further on about Abba Moses, who had become distraught, because looking off to the west, we are told he sees all the demons and uh, their approach to him. And an elder sees him struggling and tells him, you know, look to the east now. And what he sees in the East are all the saints and all the angels that far outnumber the, the demons. And so that he should not lose heart 
in the spiritual battle because he's not alone. And this becomes very important for us when we are on the battlefield and the, we find ourselves as we're knocked down and perhaps it seems as though the evil one is standing above us ready to strike that fatal blow and to be aware of who it is that is with us on the battlefield can make all the difference in the, in the sense that we continue to fight and wage that battle fearlessly and to the end of our strength, knowing that we aren't alone there. And so we don't become passive, we don't give up, that even though that, as I said, that fatal blow seems like it's going to be struck, we know all the, again, the angels, the saints, our fellow Christians, and Christ himself is with us. And so we should have a kind of fearlessness in the spiritual battle, not, not rooted in uh, a kind of prideful confidence in the self, so much as rooted in our, our knowledge of what it is that we are part of as being part of the body of Christ. And, you know, I think this is why we also hear the Father so constantly telling us not to fall into despair, that a despondent attitude is not, not really the Christian vision of things, that ours should always be one that, that is hopeful, even when things are difficult and dark. It is necessary for the strugglers to call on the aid of God during their struggle, saying to God, again with the children. So it will, it'll become obvious who the children are, but it's the three youths who are thrown into the fiery furnace that he's referring to here in the scriptures. Lord, now we follow thee with our whole heart and we fear thee and we seek thy face. Put us not to shame, but deal with us according to thy meekness and according to the abundance of thy mercy. Deliver us according to thy marvelous work and give glory to thy name, O Lord. And let all them that do evils to thy servants be confounded. And let them be put to shame in all their might and let their strength be broken. And let them know that thou art Lord, the only God, and glorious over all the world. If the tyrant goes out of his mind and heats up the furnace of pleasures seven times stronger, let those who have rested their hopes in the Lord have courage. For in a short time, the furnace will be changed into dew, and the tyrant whom they had previously feared will himself henceforth tremble at their shadow because of the help that was given them from on high. So it's a beautiful image that even if the, the demon, the tyrant should heat up the furnace seven times hotter. And so it goes out of his mind, raging against us for struggling against him, that we shouldn't fear in the same way that the three youths uh, threatened with being thrown into the furnace are ultimately saved and vindicated. That it becomes the tyrant is the one who trembles in the face of the glory and the power of God. And, uh, you know, I think so often the saints and the stories that we hear uh, fill us with wonder, but it's often hard for us, I think, to believe that we are part of that reality, you know, to, to internalize it. And, you know, this weekend, I was preaching a little bit about this, the difference that educators will 
the distinction they'll make between like surface knowledge and dynamic knowledge. And, you know, the surface knowledge is, you know, the facts, ideas, images that we can see and understand on a certain level. Uh, but it doesn't penetrate to the, the point where it changes the way that we view ourselves, reality, or the way that we live our life. The dynamic knowledge is what does that for us, where we're, we've internalized it to such an extent that it becomes the lens through which we view reality and the way that we engage others and it shapes our entire existence. And so the, the more that we enter into uh, the reality of the life that God has made possible for us, the, the deeper our faith becomes, and that we not only see that on the level of re, you know, reason or intellect, but comprehend through the gift of faith. And so have confidence, again, not simply in our limited notions of things, but confidence in the love and the strength, the power, the virtue that God reveals to the heart then we can find ourselves entering into the spiritual battle as the saints did, you know, fearlessly, even in the face uh, of great persecution. Any thoughts on this section at all? Any further comments? Again, you know, the Evergatinos, reading the Evergatinos and the latter divine sin at the same time is interesting. You know, the, the two sort of uh, bolster each other and we are presented with these, you know, images that are striking in both. But to hear, you know, so, so many of the fathers at one time speaking about these realities really broadens out, you know, our view, I think, of the spiritual battle in the spiritual life as a whole. Eric. I like the reference to um, acquiring their former freedom. It emphasizes the fact that um, the free will is the one that's able to do what is good, not right. the one that's able to choose between bad and, and good. The, right. the ability to choose what is evil is really a defect in will. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so, enter into a kind of slavery. Right. And, and that, that's the illusion for us. I think we often feel that we are acting upon our freedom when we take certain paths. And it's only often after the fact that we realize that there is a kind of slavery that we put ourselves in when we begin to experience the consequence of it. And, you know, with the passions that become so deeply rooted, I think we see that most clearly. Uh, where even if, even when we come to hate it, it becomes, we find ourselves in its grip and only with the greatest grace and patience and trust in God as well as spiritual struggle can we come to know that freedom again. Okay. We'll move on to then to uh, Isaac the Syrian. If you wish to begin a good work, you should first prepare yourself to face the temptations that are going to attack you. For when the adversary sees someone beginning a pleasing way of life with fervent faith, he's accustomed to impede him with fearful temptations of different kinds, so that the man may lose his nerve as a result and abandon the good intention of his heart. And so we, we've talked about this before, that often 
those who take up the spiritual life uh, almost come to lament it because they uh, find themselves struggling uh, with things in a way that uh, that almost seems that they are in a position that that is worse than before they took up the spiritual life and uh, afflicted with greater and greater temptations. The moment that we begin to resist uh, and to struggle with them, the more intense they seem to become. And uh, and so experientially, I think this is certainly true. And I think we are allowed to experience this, you know, both to, to test our resolve and the nature of our desire, but also to foster humility really right from the beginning, that the spiritual life is about taking hold of the grace of God, of trusting in him and his mercy, that uh, there, again, is this kind of synergy, you know, where there is this human response that is necessary but the greatest and most important part of it is our trust in God and our reliance upon his grace and so we come to feel and experience this right from the beginning and have to rely upon that grace God allows you to fall into temptation so that you may persistently knock on the door of his mercy and so that from fear of afflictions, the memory of God may be implanted in your mind and you may approach him through prayers, in which case your heart will be sanctified by ceaseless recollection of the name of God. When you supplicate him with faith, he will hear you and you will learn that it is God who rescued you. Then you will understand that your creator strengthens you and guards you. For the protection of God and his providence encompass all men. However, they do not become visible except to those who have purified themselves from sin and who constantly study the law of God. The help and the providence of God are revealed exceptionally to them when they enter into great temptation for the sake of the truth. They then perceive the help of God very clearly by means of the spiritual mind. So, you know, of course, we're, we're meant to persistently knock at the door uh, of God's mercy in the spiritual battle. And, uh, but we're told explicitly here that God allows us to fall into the temptation, not into the sin itself, but the experience of being tempted and allows us to experience something of the affliction of the demons uh, not beyond our strength uh, in, in the sense that we can be pulled there against our will, but that, again, our resolve uh, can be tested and purified, and the virtue even that we, we do possess can be perfected. That even our virtue as Christian men and women has to be perfected by the grace of God. And so even where we have sought to live a good and holy life. Even those virtues are perfected through these trials that we undergo. And I remember not too long ago, somebody saying, I remember the Holy Father said something about, and lead us not into temptation. And there was a lot of consternation uh, uh, about that. And uh, I, I can't remember, to be honest with you, how he verbalized it, but I, I think a lot of it was being taken out of context 
And certainly I think it would be more helpful just to look at what the spiritual tradition teaches us about that, that along the lines here of uh, Isaac the Syrian, that, you know, God isn't, you know, putting us in, you know, through a trial to, to punish us or with the desire that we would, uh, you know, fall into sin or be destroyed on a spiritual level. You know, if there, he does so in his providence, it's in order to awaken a deeper faith within us, desire for him, a love for virtue, a hatred for sin. You know, sometimes it's only when we have really been pummeled by something, you know, that that attraction to the sin that we hold on to uh, begins to dissipate, that we can even hate the feeling of falling into a particular sin, but still be very much attracted to the things that lead us to it. And so, you know, struggling with the temptation for a long period of time, often that's the only way that that attraction be, can be overcome and uprooted. Angela. Um, this is identical to what I was reading just yesterday from John of the Cross mm -hmm. on the Night of the Spirit, mm -hmm. where um, he talks about God lifts the veil and allows us to see ourselves, um, as St. Teresa would say, I'm a worm, or to see ourselves and our evil ways. And even, um, you know, that the people who do us injustices and who tempt us, um, you know, by their bad behavior or whatever, uh, whatever temptations are there, are part of the purification process so that we can um, gain the humility to unite with God. And um, it's lovely to see how the two just blend so beautifully. Yeah. Uh, I'm really heartened by that. Maybe John of the Cross was reading the Desert Fathers, I think. He may, he may have been, but I think part of it is also experience of the spiritual battle. The way that one articulates it might be different in the language. And as we so often talked about, you know, for the Eastern fathers, their anthropology, their psychology is also shaped by their language. And the, the experience is the same, but how they often will articulate it might take on little differences. But the deeper you immerse yourself, as you said, in both the writings, you begin to see a radical consistency there. And I saw the same thing in, uh, in John of the Cross as well. And, you know, this real depth of understanding, the same as what we're reading here. And often it's expressed in sort of this kind of Thomistic uh, view of the person, this Thomistic anthropology and psychology. It's really interesting. And I think he even reshapes it for himself based upon his own experience of the spiritual battle mm -hmm. and as he articulates it. And there's a real precision and John of the Cross, uh, in that regard, among all the Carmelite writers, I think he's, you know, Teresa of Avila is certainly beautiful, and it, it certainly as deep as John of the Cross, but the way that he articulates things is, it, the language is precise, and he's very consistent across the board, and, uh, but I, I find an incredible consistency between the East and West, uh, among the, the great, you know, ascetics and mystics. And, uh, and I think that's the value of reading both and reading them deeply. You know, it, 
we, again, we can't be lazy about it. You have to be willing to, to do that work and to enter in and read an entire corpus of a particular writer. And certainly in the West, I think John of the Cross is one of the best, you know, in terms of giving this overall vision of, of the spiritual, spiritual life. And I think in terms of beauty, he and Isaac the Syrian uh, from the East are comparable in terms of the beauty of how they ex express things. You know, there's an incredible wisdom in, uh, in John Climacus and Cassian, I love, you know, certainly, but Isaac the Syrian, there's something really special about him. And I think for the West, that's true of John of the Cross. Okay, so back to Isaac. Uh, did I finish that paragraph? Yes. So the, the greater the purification becomes, the greater one begins to see, you know, the purification of the noose, the eye of the heart, the greater clarity that one begins to have and the, the vision of faith becomes greater too. So our understanding of the ways of God and uh, that which is pleasing to him grows clearer too. Not only a vision of ourselves, but the promises that God has made to us, all of that begins to be illumined for us. And our responsibility is to stay recollected uh, again and again. We find this in the fathers to pray ceaselessly. And it's interesting in the middle of the paragraph, the recollection of the name of, of God, that there's something, there's a power and presence in the name of, of Jesus. And uh, we just had a little group on the Jesus prayer here for at the universities. And uh, there's something that really stuck out for me this time in talking to the st students about it. And Ren and I did a group on the Jesus prayer and the use of the prayer rope and, and uh, but the sacramental, a presence of Christ in the name that Jesus Christ is a, the, the first and the clearest creedal form that we have. We are acknowledging him as our Lord and Savior, uh, as the Messiah, and calling upon him. But it's also the, the name that is given to him, not by Mary or Joseph, but by, by God himself. And that is this name that has a kind of sacramental power within it too. And we went through all this, you know, the scripture writings that articulate that very clearly too, especially within the writings of Paul. And, uh, and so I think this is what the fathers picked up on, you know, the moment that we call upon the name of the Lord, you know, in an instant, you know, we were, we are drawn into his life and drawn to him and and he to us and uh we find this in the west again you know in the author of the cloud of unknowing you know says basically the same thing to call on the name of the lord uh not necessarily the jesus prayer but even just the name of jesus uh it only takes a, a fraction of a moment to to move oneself toward god and enter into that relationship and so we don't have to use an abundance of words. In fact, it's in the midst of the spiritual battle, it's often more helpful not to. 
you know, to be as simple and possible, to allow to be a groan, you know, to call out to God for help. Some have seen this help even with their bodily eyes in proportion to their temptations. In such a way, they came to know that God defended them and they were aroused to perform noble deeds. As we are told in the case of Jacob, Joshua, the son of Nun, the three children, the apostle Peter, and the rest of the saints who struggled for Christ's sake. Divine help appeared to them visibly in human form, encouraging them to, and preparing them to contend for piety. The fathers who inhabited the desert and chased the demons away from them and who made the desert a dwelling place of human angels were constantly visited by the holy angels. They protected the fathers in every kind of way and helped them in all things. They strengthened them and delivered them from the temptations and from the savagery of the demons who assailed them furiously. And even to this day, the help of God is not removed from men who have totally dedicated themselves to pleasing God, but is close to all who call on him. So to call upon the Lord is to also to call upon ourselves an abundance of, of help in the spiritual battle. You know, the angels themselves. And, you know, I think... You know, when we struggle with the belief in angels or when that's sort of pushed out to the margins or when it's, you know, turned into this sort of kind of movie form image of them. Uh, and the same thing with demons, you know, when we turn it into something, you know, that uh, is frightening, like a, a thriller movie. I think we, uh, in the process uh, distance ourselves from the reality of the spiritual battle, both in terms of the, the real presence of this evil that seeks to draw us away from God, but also the, the even stronger presence uh, uh, of God in and through his angels who are sent to protect us and to help strengthen us in our day-to-day -day spiritual struggles. Uh, in our battle with thoughts and temptations. Uh, and I think sometimes when we, we see it in the movies and it's turned into something too fantastic, we lose sight of, you know, the, the daily battle that goes on in these much more subtle forms that are often described here by the fathers. And, uh, and so the belief in angels is something so important. I think, you know, our devotion and as part of our piety uh, we don't often hear it sp spoken of, you know, it's liturgically, you know, it's East and West, both have it present within the liturgy, uh, but uh, perhaps we don't uh, celebrate it often or acknowledge it, their presence as often as we should or seek out their assistance, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or even moment-to-moment, -moment, depending on what it is that we're struggling with. Any comments on Isaac the Syrian? All right. St. Maximus. They say that God allows the demons to make war on us for five reasons. This is a first interesting paragraph. You'll probably want to highlight it because I think it's, you know, it's presented to us in such a concise form. 
and but it's I think incredibly helpful uh, in terms of our our vision of this warfare. Uh, the first they say is so that we may distinguish between virtue and vice by making war and being warred against. So a kind of clarity comes to us about what is good and evil by struggling with it on a daily basis of engaging fully in that warfare, but experiencing ourselves as being warred against. Uh, and so we might think to ourselves, oh, we're cursed, we're constantly embattled, but you know, in the process, a kind of clarity uh, is, is being given to us. Our consciences are being refined and our ability to dis distinguish between that which is from God and from the evil one, it becomes you know, more and more distinct. Secondly, so that we may acquire virtue by warfare, warfare and toil, and possess it sure and steadfast. So the more that we engage in this warfare, not only are our virtues purified and perfected, uh, but we, we become uh, to possess them uh, more fully and become more steadfast in them. So we aren't as shaken when we find ourselves being attacked as the, the virtues become stronger within us. Thirdly, so that we may not think highly of ourselves when we make progress in virtue, but may learn to be humble so that we constantly acknowledge our need for God and for his grace, that no matter how advanced we are in the spiritual life or how virtuous we may be, we're allowed to experience this warfare uh, to keep to make sure that we are calling out to God and keep our focus upon him. Fourthly, so that we may completely hate vice after having experienced it. I, I love these kind of statements because you never hear them today of hating vice, of hating sin as being the flip side of loving virtue. And uh, so important, I think, in, in the spiritual life it expresses clearly that we can't dally, you know, in sin, you know, or have, you know, put our toe in the water as it were thinking, you know, if it's just a little bit, I'll be okay, kind of thing. There has to be a real hatred for when we first see it arise around us or within our own hearts so that we don't, don't go there or input ourselves to the test. And finally, apart from all of these, the fifth reason is so that we may not forget our frailty or the power of God, which helped us to attain to passionlessness. So in and through this, we, we come to know, you know, both our, our poverty and our weakness, but also the graciousness of God, who has come to our aid, he who is our strength and our rock, and that it's God alone that, can bring us to this passionlessness or freedom from the passions. And, you know, this, you know, dispassion is sort of called the passionless passion. That is, we have one passion and it's the desire for God. And this is what directs our whole being and uh, frees us from all the others. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but I, I've always 
loved about the fathers, the, their use of the word desire, uh, because often we look at them as these, you know, individuals who lack desire or, you know, have a hatred of the things of this world. And, you know, what it is in reality is this unquenchable desire for God that comes to possess their hearts so fully that is he alone that they can think of and pursue uh, over and above all things. Anthony wrote, Pope Benedict wrote about a non-sinful understanding of Eros. That's right. You know, Pope Benedict did write a, a great deal about it that's really incredibly beautiful. I'm sorry, I can't remember where he wrote it. I'd have to look that up for you. But uh, in a very, you know, he's the clearest of writers. I mean, I've loved John Paul's writings, but they tend to be a little bit more philosophical and, and often not as clear as Benedict. Benedict was, I think, this truer, like, theologian and very precise to in his thought, uh, salve, uh, Anthony tells us that uh, that this non-sinful eros, this longing for God, uh, longing for what is good that must drive us on in the spiritual life. Again, we aren't Stoics. We're not robots or machines. And it is this desire, this holy desire that, that leads us forward in the spiritual life. And that can be a mistake, I think, that we make in the spiritual life. You know, we're, we're so distressed by the struggle with the passions that uh, we seek to violently put them down, but in the process, you know, you know, rip out a part of our personality of who we are as human beings or something even essential, you know, desire itself uh, which is essential for the, the love of God. Uh, and so, you know, if our ascetical life is simply doing violence to the self, if it's simply self-denial, and we lose sight of that desire for the beloved, and I think that's why that image is so important, the heavenly bridegroom, the beloved of the soul, you know, that this uh, nuptial imagery becomes so important you know, of, of a longing for this union and communion with the one alone who can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. You know, I think this is what's distinctive uh, about the, the Christian life and the Christian spiritual life. You know, we're not simply seeking uh, a moral perfection uh, or we're not simply seeking, you know, this freedom from distress, peace of mind uh, through our spiritual exercises, but we're seeking Christ, knowing that he alone can satisfy those desires. Rachel writes, can one experience these temptations so keenly that they feel as if they are actually doing violence to themselves, especially when it comes to thoughts? where one does not wish to sin in the thoughts, let alone sins of action. Do the demons and our wounds from past sins attack us even greater and rebel when we have set our hearts on God and his will alone? I know someone who described the fight as almost maddening because they had been so steeped in sin that the battle would even feel physically and mentally wounding. It reminds me that when... Uh, 
Saint Mary of Egypt told Abba Zosimos that there were some days she would spend face down on the ground until they passed, calling on the name of Jesus. Yes, um, I think on a couple of levels, it's a great question, great comments. I think part of it is what is described in the paragraph that we uh, read, I think from Isaac, where he talks about, you know, even if the tyrant should go mad and heat the furnace seven times greater, that we, the battle become, can be so, so fierce uh, that it can feel overwhelming or maddening, as you describe here. And at times it can feel the spiritual life can, there's a thin line between this life of deep virtue and love of God and insanity, you know, in terms of how the world views things. And I think sometimes even in terms of how we experience things, you know, to live for God, you know, it's a for terrible thing to, to fall into the hands of the living God. And, you know, to enter into this eternal life, love, eternal, you know, desire, uh, it, you know, our way of experiencing ourselves in the world can get flipped upside down and it can feel like we are losing touch on a certain level. And so the evil one can afflict us so greatly, uh, especially as you described, if we had been immersed in something for a long period of time that uh, one can feel overcome. And so be reduced to this kind of raw endurance that is described here by uh, of St. Mary of Egypt, laying face down in the dirt, you know, which is sort of symbolic too, you know, it's humus, laying, laying in the humus, humbling herself, acknowledging that she is dust before God and having no illusions and about her own strength at that moment. But her very physical action itself becomes a cry out to God. She humbles herself before him in these dire straits. To get to your other point, I think as we enter into the spiritual life, the more vulnerable we become before God and open our minds and our hearts to the action of his grace, then things begin to emerge from the deepest regions of our heart and our unconscious that, uh, you know, in order that we might be fully healed, that the light of God shines in the darkest regions of the heart and the spirit that searches the depths of God searches our depths. And so often in the midst of, even of prayer itself, things can emerge from our heart, hearts that can be somewhat shocking. You know, images, ideas, feelings of anger, you know, all these different things that have perhaps been a part of our life or long ago a part of our life. And yet when touched by the, the grace and the light of God, you know, begin to emerge. And, you know, when we hear demons cast out in the gospel, you know, it's usually with, you know, this shriek or being sent into a herd of swine, you know, who in a crazed uh, state, you know, run into the uh, into the sea and drown themselves. That that experience of of being liberated uh, can be uh, a kind of a, a shocking upheaval 
uh, in, in one's own consciousness and sense of oneself and disturbing too. And I think we catch little glimpses of it in, you know, in psychoanalysis, you know, you learn very quickly that there is no sense of time in the unconscious. The things that took place 40 years ago are right there. We might not be consciously aware of them, but the moment something touches upon them, uh, thing, they're right there at the surface. And, uh, and I think something even greater happens when you know, we open our, our minds and our hearts to God and not only to what we're thinking and saying, but to the action of his grace and things begin to emerge from very deep within us. And, you know, for Christians, this should be a hopeful experience, even though it is disturbing uh, because it's telling us that even memory, imagination, things such as this can be healed by the grace of God. Not that we forget it, but that the grip that it often has upon us or how it shapes our identity, often in a negative way, uh, we can be healed from that and begin to see ourselves more and more, uh, as it were, through the eyes of God, how he sees us rather than by this self-image that has been often formed either by trauma uh, that has come to us you know, in our life as a whole or that we've inflicted upon ourselves through our own actions or our own particular sins. But you know, the, the deeper our faith becomes and the more that we can trust God, and this is why prayer is so important, to keep us from slipping into a kind of madness in the face of this, uh, you know, falling apart, you know, and seeing these deeper truths. Uh, because think about it, we develop all these defense mechanisms precisely not to see the truth, the fullness of the truth. Those defense mechanisms are in place for a good reason. And, you know, as you begin to remove them, there has to be a greater truth that is in place to hold the self together. Like if a psychotherapist or analyst took a sledgehammer to somebody's defenses, says, oh, you have this in place because of this and this and this, and obviously this trauma brought this apart. And, and you know, the person would crumble into, you know, a psychotic episode. You just, you have to work from the outside in. And, you know, when we think about the divine physician, you know, he's the one who knows the, the most subtle workings of the mind and the heart, the deepest reaches of the soul in a way that no therapist ever could. And so, you know, there are going to be things that emerge from within us that can, again, seem to be afflictions, but are actually a kind of healing. And it is sort of like a person walking out of a cave into the, a bright light. And, you know, the pain of that can be great. You know, we want to shield ourselves from it. Uh, and yet gradually there's an adjustment there and one begins to feel the warp, warmth of the sun, the healing of it. And, uh, and then one can enter out into it fully. 
And I think the more that we do that in the spiritual life, the more trusting we can become in that vulnerability before God. Rachel, is that, do you have a follow-up or did that cover it? A couple other thoughts here. I think it might be Deus Caritas Est, Ashley says. Anthony is uh, probably, I see 34 hits for Eros there. Uh, so Anthony, for what it's worth, sometimes I almost feel that the devils even wish to snatch away prayer or take over consciousness to direct my attention away from God and to them. Yes, you know, I think that's true. You know, I think any means by which to distract us from God, and it, it doesn't have to be something extraordinary. You know, it can be a, sh a subtle shifting of the attention, uh, you know, a kind of discomfort with silence that leads us to want to distract ourselves. I'm sorry, I'm going to tell an old story again. So I apologize to everybody who's been part of my groups for years. But uh, I used to love going to this Trappist monastery in upstate New York. And for the longest time, they put me in this nice, these nice rooms on the first floor. And uh, but once a bishop came and uh, the only room that they had in the retreat house was upstairs, but the windows were at the top of the ceiling. And so oh, when you looked out the window, all you could see was sky. And I remember sitting in the, my room and, you know, I was praying and I had this thought, well, pick up this book and read it. And, and I felt myself physically moved to go do that and sort of caught myself in the act, you know, because the, it was incredibly silent and I didn't have even a view to distract me. I only had the sky above. And so there was a tangible pull to distract myself even with something good, with spiritual reading, rather than to remain in that silence of, of prayer that I was engaged in at the moment. So it can even be something as subtle as that, you know, pick, pick that up and, and begin reading it or shift to doing this rather than remaining where you are, especially remaining in prayer or with your focus upon God, allow, allow the mind to be distracted. And that can be a first in a series of steps um, to the movement away from God, but it often happens throughout the course of the day in multiple ways. On the timelessness of the unconscious, a conostasis by Father Pavel Florensky opens with this theme. Oh, I didn't know that. That's good to know. I'll have to read that. What do you know? And Rachel, yes, this, okay. Here's another one from Rachel. Where it would seem to bring the person the, to the edge of sanity, but that is precisely where all our ideas that we had of ourselves and of God are brought into the light, where one becomes disillusioned with oneself and realizes that they have been brought to the threshold of the bridal chamber where there are no illusions, one stands as they are in God, where, on, where one allows themselves to be loved as they have always been, right? And as we always have been, to be loved as we are can be a painful experience. 
for many. I mean, to allow ourselves to be seen by God and to imagine that he loves us. And sometimes that's hard to imagine. And I often think about those who first encountered Christ in this regard. In Matthew, the tax collector, that Caravaggio painting almost seems to sort of capture that, you know, his head sunk down towards the table and Christ pointing to him, you know, follow me, or the woman caught in adultery, you know, when everybody else had stones in the hand, it must have seemed surreal. And, uh, you know, the, this presence of love, or even for the apostles when called, you know, and dropping everything, what, what is it that spoke to the, the mind and the heart that allowed them to do that, to leave everything, to follow this person that they just met, an itinerant preacher? Ashley. Ashley writes, took me a little longer to type this out, but I wanted to bounce off of Anthony's comment on Eros. I was recently talking to some friends about Pope Benedict's clarifying of what God's love looks like. Pope Benedict says something like, on the cross, God's Eros is made present for us. Because his love is both agape and eros. Agape, because it is selfless, self-gift, unconditional, sacrificial, etc. And eros, because God yearns for his people in the same way that eros burns passionately for the beloved. Eros moves the lover to become one with the beloved, that is, Christ and his church and through the Eucharist. So on the cross, God begs the love of his people. Prayer is our act of arrows back to God, where our own yearning for him is most present within us as we call out to him from our innermost being. So prayer is also the biggest target of the enemy because he knows that if he can destroy our connection to God, he greatly frustrates our passionate desire for him. Beautifully put and... Um, Absolutely true. You know, I think when we enter into that experience of the cross in particular, as you described, uh, and the cry, you know, I thirst, you know, it's, can, can we enter into that with the understanding that the what it is that he's thirsting for is certainly the presence of the Father, but also for, for our, our love, that there is a, a yearning there that drove him to the cross on our behalf and uh, a longing that that love would be requited. And I think, you know, so often, you know, our, in our desire to conceptualize things, this God, the idea of God being impassable, you know, and unmovable uh, has often been something that we've struggled with. You know, because in the idea of a God being moved, you know, uh, and so scenes like Christ crying, you know, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus or suffering on the cross, you know, for those who would have been driven by this understanding of God would have been nonsensical. You know, how could God love us in this fashion and desire this from us? And what is our response to that? So all these are, are magnificent comments and also in light of what we've been reading here this evening.
you know, why is it that he allows that temptation? Why is it that he allows us to enter into this trial other than to awaken within us, uh, you know, that, that which is going to draw us away from the illusion uh, into the, you know, fullness of the truth of his love and that we might see something of our true dignity and identity in that. So that brings us to 8.30 here this evening and wonderful comments and discussion across the board. And so thank you all. It's really extraordinarily beautiful. And uh, it'd be worth going back and reading the comments. We put them in the, uh, on the, with the posts of the podcast. So you can always go back to them, but some of these were really extraordinary. Somebody should compile a book of, of, of this. Maybe we could uh, transcribe all the talks. Somebody could type them all out for us in, in the comments. So when we close there, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Thanks be